we are all living in the hangover of naturalism. That's what I said four weeks ago from C.S. Lewis, quoting C.S. Lewis. He said, we are all living in the hangover of naturalism. We all have naturalism in our bones. And how I tried to unpack that was naturalism, naturalism is this. Don't worry about the paper towels. We've got plenty of them. Naturalism is this. Naturalism, are you still looking at me? Okay. Naturalism is a way of seeing the world without miracles. Then I said, all right, but maybe some of us grew up in church, and, and so we grew up more with uh, uh, naturalism and a little bit of moralism. And I said, moralism is a way of seeing the world without generosity. But then we kept unpacking it, and there's, as we'd gone out through these four weeks with the generous king, and I said, but there's also a few other things that we are tempted to drift towards, worldviews that we're tempted to live by, or, or to Jesus plus these kind of ways of life and habit, and this is how we think. And so in putting these out, I said, uh, naturalism, moralism, and then we talked about legalism and agnosticism. Legalism being the way of seeing the world without grace. You see the world, there's no grace. And then agnosticism would be a say, I said it was a way of seeing the world without joy. A, world of, a way of seeing the world without joy. But as we went, cynicism was addressed with hope and chaos was addressed with peace and despair was addressed with joy and and those were all connected to the arrival of the one we've been looking to and so we saw thousands and thousands of years ago there was a barren couple and they kept getting older and older and older and older and God promised them that there's going to be a great nation come from them there's going to have a lot of kids gonna have a lot of kids they have no kids no kids so they start worrying about it. And then God provides. So Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, this kid of promise. But then we saw how Judges, and Judges leads us to wanting a king, and then we get King David. And then we got to the point where we saw, ooh, the king promised from this line, and this king that we've all been longing for from Judges, we saw last week, and he's the one that addresses cynicism, he addresses chaos, he addresses despair with his arrival. That's Advent, that with his coming, with his showing up, with his arriving to the place, hope, joy, peace, flood, the environment, the atmosphere. With his arrival, one way to think about it is how the Bible talks about his kingdom is coming with his presence and what is his kingdom marked by? Hope, joy, and peace. And so when he arrives, that's what he brings. This morning, there's not an ism, okay? I've ran out of them, all right? Just kidding. There's so many more. But I want you to think about this. Worry is a way of seeing the world without a father. So this may be a little bit more because you're like, I can get away with stiff-arming naturalism because I'm like, oh, I believe the Bible. You're not getting me, Pastor Ryan. But if I just cut straight to the chase and say worry, then that's something that I can stand in kind of comfortably. Why? Because I know the shoe fits us. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not worried like, oh, I gotta, I gotta uh, I'm kind of wondering. Are there some warriors in here? I'm only going to be speaking to two people today. Nope. This shoe fits you. 
It's a one size shoe. It fits all. It's a clown shoe. Worry, worry now. That, that's got to be anxiety, right? Now, let me not get into anxiety as in medical diagnosis and the prescription following that. Before that, I lived in a world where anxiety was a broader term and then that would fit underneath it. That's where I'm still living in, in my mind. Okay, so broader term, anxiety, what's that? It's a feeling of worry, of nervousness, of unease. You have that sense of like, uh, I'm nothing, this isn't going to go right. I'm unsure of what might happen, of what uh, uh, an event happening, an imminent event, something's about to come up, or, uh, or you're having that unease, that worry, that nervousness about uh, an event where you don't know the outcome. You're not unsure of the outcome. You can't predict, control, or necessarily force it. So you're left there to feel just unease with, it's out of my control. Worry simply is vigilance distorted. Vigilance distorted. Worry is essentially vigilance distorted. Okay. We got, we got kids here. I can talk in between cries. And we're adults. We can focus, right? Kids, we love you. All right. It's vigilance distorted, meaning you're scanning the horizon, looking out of what's out there, and all you see is threats, and all you feel is you're without a dad. Threats with no dad, that's worry. Now, some of us, in response to this unfathered world, feeling that way, we, uh, we have that fight response, right? And we attack. We see the threats and we're like, oh yeah, I was made for this, let's go to war. You know, like that. That was for my kids. No one got it. All right. Just do it. You know, kids, just go to war. Okay. Some of us have freeze or flight response. We freeze or retreat. That's, that's vigil without action. And the first one, that attacking, that's what that turns into is vigilante justice. When you see the threat and you want to act on it and you take it into your own hands, that's vigilante justice. That's anger, right? That's that first response to those feelings of unease or worry or nervousness. We fight, we attack, we go angry. Others of us, we freeze, we flee, we retreat. And that's vigil without action. That's, that's anxiety. That's worry. So to try to orient us, before we even get to 1 John 4, I want to just go to straight to Jesus' words. This is what Jesus says in, in Luke 12. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus said, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more, and the body more than clothing. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. All right. So at this point, you should know the hard hammer of my right hand is coming down. I'm just going to yell at you, don't worry, right? Like, take these two verses and call me in the morning. But that, that's not me. You know that. Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. If you think about it, you have good reasons to worry. Just be honest with you. You have good reasons to worry. I'm not going to see there's no reason to worry. I mean, just the example from Luke 12. 
Jesus is talking to people who are poor. They have primitive sanitation. They have no health care. And their lives immediately depend on whether it rains or not. When, when drought comes here, it's an it's a inconvenience, right? Like, ah, uh, can't get my boat in the lake. It's too low, right? Or I'm going to be asked to not uh, water my grass. Not, not required, not enforced, but asked to not water my grass. That's going to upset me, right? This is frustrating. For them, drought comes, they die. This is the people Jesus is speaking to. There are things to worry about. And that's why I say that's, it's kind of easy for me to step into this passage and this thinking is because it's all of us. To some level, to some extent, we are worriers. We worry, we fret, we're nervous, we're anxious, we're uneasy. We all put our own spin on the temptation to worry. But this is one of those universals. We all do it. We all get obsessed with the wrong things. Kiddos, did you hear me? Your parents are going to tell you this later in life. They should be telling you now as well. We all get obsessed with the wrong things. If you're six years old, maybe at that level, if you're six, Blake, if you're six and your friends, not to be, you know, pointing fingers or anything, but if you're a six-year-old, I'm just kidding. It could look like this. My, my older brother makes three bucks more on his allowance. If I only had that extra three bucks, why? If I only had a little bit more. Then if you're the 10-year-old brother, uh, my sister's 16. She's, low, she's so lucky. She has a job. If only I had a job, wouldn't that be great? And then you get a job, and then you get bills to pay. And you think having a job is going to solve <laughs> all your worries, but now you've got bills to worry about and everything you want or need cost. So now you've got an after-school job and put some spending money in your pocket and you still worry, am I going to get into college? How will I pay for, for college? Uh, Part-time job, loans, how am I going to make this happen? And that doesn't stop for the rest of your life. It's another season to another season to another season. So maybe to ask it poignantly to us is what, what hijacks the controls of your mind? Or to make it more action, what hijackers seize the controls of your mind? I'd like you to, to personalize this, to think about this yourself. What are the one, two, six, dozen things that tend to snag you? What what do you tend to worry about? Maybe it's not financial, but maybe it is financial and it's also some other things. There's other worries. Do I have any real friends? What if I don't make the team? What if I forget my lines in the play? What if someone else gets picked for that committee, for that job? What if, what if, what if? 
relationally, will I ever find a husband or spouse? If I do find one, will he or she be faithful to me? Am I, am I worth marrying? We usually think about worry connected only to, to money or the lack of money. But maybe that's more our American consumerism bent. But, but just think about the other things that you worry about, that you fret about, that, that stir up that unease in you throughout your day. Again, relationally, will I be able to have kids? If I have kids, how will, I, uh, how will they turn out? How responsible will I feel for the decisions they make? What about my health? Some of our friends are dying. Some of your parents are dying. Cancer is painful. Some of us worry about, is that going to be us? Is that how we're going to end our lives? What if I get Alzheimer's? I can't imagine ending my life not being able to recognize the people that have loved my life. What about that? So there's these worries. It's universal. It looks different ways, but we're all worriers. In Jesus' story, he's speaking of this worrying greed, this anxious greed. It's, I want something I might not get, so I worry. I want something that I might not get, so I worry. So that's a bit of, of, of what we worry about, but the question underneath that is, why do we worry? Well, in Luke 12, Jesus unpacks three reasons there. Let me quickly get there before we get to 1 John 4, okay? There are three little reasons. He says, this is why we worry. First, he says we lose sight of God because what we want and worry about is the only thing we see. The thing that either we, we really want or that we're worried about not getting is all that we see so we can't see God anymore. It's, he's been eclipsed. One of the things Jesus does here is to help us spot things. Like where do I go off? Where do I worry? What makes me forget? Why do I fret? Why do I lose it? See, when, when anxious greed is growing, it's choking out faith. When that worry and that fret is growing, it's choking out the faith. That, 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 that's the imagery that I'm trying to paint. This growing awareness of what you want or what you're worried about not getting or what might happen is bigger than the Lord, then that is snuffing out your faith of being able to see him. And what's really sad about that is that an unfathered person thinks and feels and experiences this world like an orphan. An unfathered person or a person who thinks they're unfathered thinks, feels, and experiences this world like an orphan. So this may not be the case, but you may feel or think and experience life as an orphan. What does that mean? It means you feel as if no one cares about you. That's, a, that's an orphan mentality. Feel as if no one cares about you. You're anxious about friends and money and school and grades. 
you live on the success fail basis. An orphan struggles to trust things to God. Why? Because they don't really think he's the father. Can't trust him. Can't believe he's really present and good. Orphan experiences where they, have, they always have to fix the problem. Tend to compare yourself with others. It's an unfathered mentality. I'm not secure in the Father's love for me so that I have to compare myself with other people so I can get some sense of value or worth compared to them. Needs to be in control of situations and others. Another sign would be looks for satisfaction in possessions. Not in the presence of a family, but in the possessions that make him feel something. So Jesus says, why do we worry? We lose sight of God because what we want and worry about is the only thing we see. And then he says to warriors act, warrior, I can't even say it. People that worry. <laughs> Later on, I think I am going to say warriors. So let's not get it confused. People who worry act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. That's what Jesus unpacks in Luke 12. Warrior, people who worry act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. When he says, which of you by worrying can add a single cubit to his lifespan, a single hour? If you can't even do a small thing, why are you worrying about the rest? That's, that's the central problem of this. The central to the problem of worry is the illusion that we can control things. If only I could get my retirement right, I could control the future. If only my parents would give me three more do dollars allowance, I, would, I wouldn't get caught short on a Saturday. If I could only get my diet and medicine right, I wouldn't get cancer. If I could only figure out the right child hearing technique, I could guarantee how my kids turn out. Control, control, control. Worry assumes the possibility of control over the uncontrollable. That's what worry is. Really, anxiety and worry and, and control are really the, the flip sides of the same coin. We want to control something. Since we can't control it, we worry about it. And then one more thing. Last thing he says is, Jesus, he says, a person who worries is storing treasure in the wrong place. Meaning, if what you most value can be taken away, corroded, destroyed, then you set yourself up really you order your life to have an anxious heart. Do you hear me? Yeah. You're setting the recipe to have an anxious heart. What you're signing up for. Have you heard me yet? If what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for worry. Whether that be money, whether that be your health, whether that be a particular friendship, whether that be the dream of a marriage, success in sports or business, how your child turn out, whatever it is, 
even when it feels good, even when it's going good, even in that you're still building your house on sand and it's going to erode. And so you're setting up your heart to be anxious because all your hope and treasure in is something that's going to be taken from you in the future. So Jesus takes apart why we worry. Gets it into us of like, where do we worry? Not just how do people worry and why do others worry, but us in relation to him. But with our worrying hearts exposed, let's expose God's heart and then have them collide. You want to do that? First John 4, verse 7. Our text this week and last week have been so powerfully brilliant that I've had to introduce them with darkness for 30 minutes, okay? With all that worry, with all that worry, with all that worry, with all that worry, 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So he says, let us love one another. He said this many times in this letter up to this point, but now he gets into love. Like a a precious gem, he holds it up and looks at it and says, turning his hand, love is from God, okay, and God is love. How can a being love? How can a being love? It's one of those simple, hard questions, right? In relationship with another, that's how. But what about God? This is what I love talking about the Trinity. Before God's relationship with humans, it it must have been a sad, lonely existence for him. No, false. He's always been in community forever. Father and Son and Spirit. He's never been loveless. That's all we can say. God is love. And love is from God. We understand this as Jesus uh, unveils the Father to us in his prayer. In, in John 17, 22, he says to, to the Father, he says, I've given them the glory, speaking of the disciples, I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. So the first note here is you are loved by the Father. As the Father loves the Son. Do you hear me? There's no JV, 8th grade, 7th grade love that you get because you're connected to Jesus. And so then, so the Father throws you some leftover scraps of love from it. No, the same ferocious forever love He's had for the Son, now He pours on you. That's how he loves you. The second note is this. You see this 
only as you see Jesus reveal God the Father. The Son, Jesus, was with the Father before creation. In eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit were together in loving, holy communion, the perfect, joyful fellowship. Mike Reeves boldly asserts this. The most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is Father. We shouldn't think of him primarily as a creator, king, or ruler, but Father. All his ways are beautifully fatherly. Continues. He is a father. A father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if, before all things, God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been life-giving. God is love. He's an ever-flowing fountain, flowing with life and love. I think this is Reeves again. He says, the Father gives out life. So love is not something the Father has. Do you hear that? Is that there? The Father gives out life. So love is not something the Father has. This is hard to wrap your mind around. I'm going to say it three more times. So love is not something the Father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. If he did not love, he would not be Father. And so before all of this, creating all this, he loved the Son. And the Father is the Father of the eternal Son. He radiates in love and giving out his life and being to the Son. Now, if you're like, well, this is still hard to wrap my mind around because what is love? Well, Wayne Grudem defines God's love as this. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. This definition understands love as self-giving for the benefit of others. This attribute of God shows that it is part of his nature to give of himself in order to bring about blessing or good for others. So that Father eternally gives of himself to the Son in the Spirit. He loves the Son. But John also stated, everyone who loves has been born of and knows God. This means the Father set his love on you. He gives of himself his own son to you. Worry, 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 worry. He loves you. Your heart is to be lifting in your chest. It's a crazy, joyful heartbeat to know the Father, Son, and Spirit give of themselves to us to bring us deep joy and happiness to bring us excitement to bring us thrill that's his nature that's how he acts to those he has set his love and he will keep giving of himself to us for all eternity if you're a christian 
if he's given you new life, you've been born again by the Father's affectionate love for you. That's what John is arguing. He's arguing, love one another. I've told you 10 times this point. Here's my another reason. Because their Father loves us and made us a new creation with a new heart that loves, a new heart that takes in and experiences God's love and shares that with others. So it's let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God and God is love. And then verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. So this is, I gave you Grudem's definition of love. Here's God's definition of love, of his own love. God's love was revealed among us, maybe not definition, description, revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the antidote to your worry is a baby crying in Bethlehem. Uh, Something that makes us anxious (laughs) is the answer to all of your worry. A baby crying in Bethlehem is the answer to our anxiety, our unease, our worry that comes from, are we fathered? Is this world a fathered world? Is there a dad present? We know this love because His love is shown, displayed, executed by sending His Son be born for us. We're not love. We are loved. God is love and he loves us. And if you doubt it, look at Jesus. Dane Ortland unpacks that this way. This love, Christ died to confound our intuitive assumptions that divine love has an expiration date. I'll read that again. Christ died to, the reason he's saying. Why did Christ die? Christ died to confound our intuitive assumptions that divine love has an expiration date. He died to prove that God's love is, as Jonathan Edwards put it, an ocean without shores or bottom. Kids, you ever been to the ocean? It's huge, right? It's too big? It's a good answer. An ocean without shores or bottom. God's love is as boundless as God himself. This is why the Apostle Paul speaks of divine love as a reality that stretches to an immeasurable breadth and length and height and depth. In Ephesians 3.18, the only thing in the universe as immeasurable as that is God himself. God's love is expansive as God himself. For God to cease to love his own, God would need to cease to exist. 
Because God does not simply have love, He is love. In the death of Christ for us sinners, God intends to put His love for us beyond question. You are loved. So, your vigilance doesn't have to be looking at the rising horizon and seeing all the threats and responding with anger attack or anxiety and retreat. It can be constructive action for others. Do you, do you know that, that that's what that vigilance in you is given to you for? To see that there's a threat and then out of love move and act for the benefit of others. Did I just connect all the dots for you? I've been running those, those threads throughout this whole time. Did, did you hear me? Okay, I'll say it again. Let me keep going. Kiddos, you still here? Okay, look at the screen. Jesus says this. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. This is after Luke 12 at the beginning. Don't worry. Don't fret. But seek his kingdom. These things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid. Fret, worry. Little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom, so you live in a fathered world. And he delights. He, he's not stingy at all. We've been saying it so much. He's the generous king who loves to give. He delights to give you the kingdom. So the avocation, he says, is sell your possessions, give to the poor, make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an exhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Rather than worry about your possessions, sell your possessions and give. Instead of every form of greed of what's in it for me, I want my share, I've got a lot so I can sit comfortably. Instead of that, you can give because you've been given to. That's the expansive love of God to you. That you've been given to so that you can give. Your father who loves you gives you a life that you can give away and not lose. Father gives you a life that you can give away and not lose. And so in response, like how do we worry earlier? Let me think about this. Rather than that eclipse of your worry, coming to Jesus, seeing Jesus again in the stable and on the cross and out of the tomb at the right hand of the Father right now, that would help you see the Father's love for you. It's bigger than the cause of your worry. And so it's a realignment of just shifting 
Instead of your worrying, eclipsing your God, you seeing God in Christ's face and seeing his love for you and that eclipsing whatever is causing you to worry. Second, repent of trying to control your existence. Controlling people love that kind of language. Sorry, I just confronted you. Just told you something is wrong but you'd love to fix it, right? But here we go. I don't want you to fix it. I want you to turn to the Lord and trust that he's in control. And so that your tight, worrying hands that you're trying to control the uncontrollable in repentance would start to look like this and start opening up some more and more and more where you trust the Lord with your life. And then number three, you store your treasure in heaven. So all your hope and joy in this life and everything that you treasure, that you love, is not in something that's going to die, be removed, or taken from you, but in Christ in heaven, who is your treasure now and forevermore. That's the response to this. See the Father's love for you turn from your trying to control the uncontrollable and store your treasure in heaven. And then just that song, I can't do the melody if you know me, but I just keep thinking of don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about a thing, right? Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about a thing. Because everything's going to be alright. I can't promise you that. I think that's a terrible song to sing to you, right? That's false peace. Peace, peace, peace. I don't know. You may drive home in the rain. I don't know. That's, should have said that. Uh, Sorry. Don't worry about a thing. Because the Father loves you forever. That's how I'd sing that song. Don't worry about a thing. You live in a fathered world. You're loved by the Father. And you will get to experience the reign of Jesus' peace and hope and joy and love in its fullness in the future when he arrives again. And that will crush, eliminate any threats, any need for vigilance or overvigilance or hypervigilance or worry, anxiety. The kingdom of peace forevermore. Father, we thank you for that. I thank you for that. I ask for you to work this in us as in your love for us. What Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, I pray that the breadth and height and love that we would experience that. Holy Spirit, I ask that you grant us a work where we would know and experience the Father's love for us. And so we don't respond to worry by trying to worry out of worry. But that we respond in faith, trusting that you have us and you're for us. In Christ's name, amen.